I heard this week somebody say, uh, you know, I don't think it's, I think it's kind of dangerous to tell people that um, once the Lord has you, you can never escape His grip. I thought, dangerous? <laughs> That's terrific. You will never, no, never, no, never be forsaken by a God who comes all the way from eternity, all the way into this world, and becomes a man goes to the cross and makes a great exchange. His goodness for our wickedness, our sin put on Him, and He pays the price. This is the first Sunday of Advent, but you wouldn't really know it at Hebron because we're near the end of this series on Nehemiah. But it's a fascinating thing how the Lord uh, makes timing work well. We're in chapter 12. Uh, What we find here is the dedication of the wall that's been done for a number of months. And in this dedication and in what they do and in what we see here in this text, we see a perfect portrait of Jesus Christ coming to redeem us. So we're going to begin in chapter 12, verse 27, and I've excised a number of names, uh, so I'm not sure what will be on the screen, but you listen, listen to this. <laughs> and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. The sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nathalites, also Beth Gilgal, and from the regions of Geba and Asmathath. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And the singers sang with Jezariah, their leader. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and Ezra the scribe went before them. And at the fountain gate they went straight up before the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir and those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of of Yeshia, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hanel, and the tower of the hundred, and the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard." So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. 
And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all, Jerus- or all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was from the Levites and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. The man was from Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. He was uh, one of five sons born to Rose, who was a homemaker, and John, who was a steelworker. Among the five boys, who all were fairly athletic, there was one who was far and away more athletically accomplished than any of the others. When he graduated from high school, he had six different offers to play professional baseball. That was his dream. He wanted to be a right fielder and follow in the footsteps of his idol, Roberto Clemente. But when the boys came before their mother and said, what should Joe do? She said, I want him to go to college. And so that ended his dream to play baseball. He decided to play football. And he received over a hundred offers from colleges and universities. In fact, five of them gave him offers like this, $6,000 a month in a new car every year. And when his older brother Frank heard about it, he said, you're, gonna go, you're not going to go play for cheaters, are you? He said, no, I'm not. I'm going to go play for Bear Bryant at the University of Alabama. On the first day of practice, the legendary coach did something he had never done before. He invited a player up into his tower Bear Bryant used to have a tower that was 70 feet high and it looked over every square inch of the practice field. And so he called Joe to come up and stand with him. For 15 minutes they stood there and Bear Bryant spoke to him. Years later, when asked why he would take that new guy, this new freshman into his inner sanctum in that tower, he said, because Joe Namath is the greatest athlete I've ever known. He was the best recruit in all of my history as a coach in football. Within two years, Joe Namath took them to a national championship. In five more years, he led the New York Jets to the Super Bowl win. In fact, in the history of the NFL, he's the only quarterback to win a national championship and also lead his team to a Super Bowl win. The truth is, if it hadn't been for Joe Namath, there may not have ever been a Super Bowl. In 1968, there was a discussion between the American Football League and the National Football League to merge, and there were a lot of people that were against it. But then on the 12th of January, 1969, the New York Jets, captained by Joe Namath, beat the NFL juggernaut, the Baltimore Colts, and that deal was inked within one day. Vince Lombardi said, Joe Namath is a perfect passer. Bill Walsh said, Joe Namath is the most gifted quarterback I've ever seen. And he coached another quarterback named Joe. His name was Joe Montana. Now there are those who want to look at statistics and they want to question whether Joe Namath should be in the Hall of Fame. But those who understand the sport and understand the flow of history know that 
there nobody should be in the Hall of Fame any more than Joe Namath. Years later, after or one year after he arrived in New York, his teammate Sherm, uh, Sherman Plunkett said, you're now called Broadway Joe. And Joe Namath became Broadway Joe. He loved that. According to the Sporting News, no one in the history of sports has ever eclipsed the iconic status of Joe Namath. There's so many things to say about Joe Namath that are exemplary, but of all of the things that impresses me about Joe Namath, and I went back and listened to all the interviews I could find this week, because I had a, I had a thought, and the thought was what I confirmed when anyone ever credited Joe with an accomplishment, he'd always deflect it. When he was sitting in his locker, after that great Super Bowl win, a reporter came up to him and said, Joe, you're top of the hill. Joe said, no, not me. We are top of the hill. Years later in an interview, an interviewer asked Joe, without you, the NFL wouldn't be what it is today. What do you think of that? He looked the guy in the eye and he said, if it wasn't for my mother and father and my brothers, and Coach Bruno and Coach Bryant, I wouldn't even be in the NFL. Whenever it came to credit, Joe Namath always would deflect it. It's always about the team. It's always about the coach. It was always about the mission. A lot like Nehemiah. When you get to chapter 12, you find out something that you may not have known. You think to yourself, you know, this, I haven't seen these personal pronouns used since chapter 7. In the first few chapters, all the way to chapter 7, verse 15... Nehemiah often refers to himself as I or me or my. But from chapter 7, verse 15, all the way to the middle of chapter 12, you don't see any personal pronouns. It's as if he's disappeared. And that's sort of just, just like him. Thirteen years before Nehemiah came to the city of Jerusalem, Ezra came. He was sent to restore the temple in Jerusalem. It took him and the people of Jerusalem four years to rebuild that temple. And when they finished that temple, it was a shadow of its former self. But here when Nehemiah comes, and the people of Jerusalem begin to build the wall with Nehemiah, it takes them 52 days. And when they finish the wall, it is bigger and wider and better and stronger than it's ever been before. Remember, it's 40 feet high and 11 feet thick, and there are 12 gates, and everything about it is perfect. But in the midst of it all, Nehemiah never takes credit. He never points to himself and says, if it weren't for me, it wouldn't have been done. And nowhere is that clear here in chapter 12. By chapter 12, the wall's been built for months. During the months that have transpired between the building of the wall and the dedication, many things have happened in the life of the people. Not only has the wall been restored, but so has their lives. And we've reviewed this in the past couple of weeks. We've talked about all that they did. 
the people of God. They ask Ezra to bring the law out. And as he brings it, they build a platform. And there he stands for six hours reading the law of Moses to them. And they weep and they mourn. They're in guilt and shame. And in the midst of their guilt and shame, Nehemiah and the Levites say to them, No longer mourn, for the the joy of the Lord is your strength. They experience incredible forgiveness. They begin to have a feast at the directive of the Lord and they sacrifice for their own sin and they celebrate for a week. Then they come and make a great confession. Then they come and make a great covenant with the Lord with four major elements. They sort of say, Lord, we will do these things. So it's clear by chapter 12, not only has the wall been rebuilt, but so have these people's lives been rebuilt. And they come to dedicate not just the wall, they come to dedicate themselves and the city to the mission of God. And they know what that mission is. To be salt and light to the Gentiles. There's no self-promotion here. There's no self-directed praise. What you find here in chapter 12 is what you find whenever you find true dedication of hearts to the Lord. Whenever you see people wanting to follow God and His purposes, you will find four elements of their lives that they're willing to sacrifice. They're willing to lay down for the glory of God and for His purposes. So let's look at them. First of all, notice, if you will, they sacrificed their pockets. Look at verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms and contributions, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather them into portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered to them. See, this is the clearest sign that the Lord has changed their hearts. They're willing to change their lifestyle. They're willing to give to the Lord structurally and systematically. They're willing to bring into the storehouse everything that the Lord has commanded them to bring. The end of of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16, Paul says to the people, On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up, that he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, if you want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will give to the Lord on a regular, systematic basis. Your first priority will be funding the work of the Lord because you yourself will see that you are a product of His work. And that's what's happening here. Nehemiah says they begin to bring their gifts, their first fruit, their tithes and offerings into the storehouse, into Jerusalem to supply the work of the Lord. In the late 1800s, Dr. Host took over for Hudson Taylor in China. And after he had been there for about two years, a friend of his from England came to visit him and spent a week observing his dedication to the Lord and to the ministry. And after he had been there a week, he was ready to leave. And you've heard me tell this story before because this is my favorite line that Host ever uttered, at least the ones that I know. He's, the guy says to him, Dr. Host, will you pray to the Lord that I might be nothing? 
host looks them in the eye and says, you are nothing, take it by faith. (laughs) That's not all host said. One time he was asked near the end of his life, in your opinion, Dr. Host, what is the clearest sign of genuine faith? You know what he said? There's no more practical test of our love for Jesus and for others than our attitude toward our money and possessions. Nor is there anything that tests our claim to be delivered from the, this present darkness than our giving. The word sacrifice literally means to make, make something holy. And what Nehemiah is telling us here in this dedication is the people take their possessions and their wealth and their money and they make it holy. They say to the Lord, it is yours. It's simply a fruit of your grace in our lives. We will do something that we haven't done in decades. We will give on a regular, systematic way out of our own pocket to fund the work that you intend to do in this city. The first sign of their true dedication is that they're willing to sacrifice their pockets. Second, they're willing to sacrifice their pride. Verse 27 and 28a. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all of their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, with harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem. Do you see what's going on here? The people of Jerusalem are saying, if we're going to dedicate this city and ourselves, and this wall, let's gather together everybody we can, even those outside the walls of the city. Even those that may not have all at all been a part of the building of this wall. You see this? They are willing to be inclusive. And they're willing to invite people in, the Levites and others from these towns around Jerusalem, come on in as we celebrate and give glory and honor to the Lord. Years ago, my brother and sister were home with me celebrating my mother's birthday. And that was unusual. My sister was in college. She rarely came home once she got in college, at least not at my mother's birthday time. And so we were there, and we're ready to sit down for dinner. And right before we sit, there's a ringing of the doorbell. Somebody goes and answers. I can't remember who it is. And immediately when the door opens, I think to myself, and I'm sure my sister and brother do, oh, there's one of mom's projects. That's what we called these women. No matter where she lived, no matter how old she was, she always had a number of women in her life who were projects. I mean, these were women who were down and out. Maybe they didn't have much money. Maybe they had a broken relationship, whatever it was. And my mother would take them to the store. She'd invite them over. She'd spend time. She'd do deep dives in their lives. And we called these people mom's projects. And so there's one of her projects at the door. And we think to ourselves, at least my sister and I do, what terrible timing. Who is this woman's crashing the party and she's got a cake. And my sister's incensed. She said to me, this is our party. And we've got a dessert. We've got a great dessert planned. And this woman has to come in. I said, shh. Woman comes in, puts the cake on the counter in the kitchen, comes to the dining room table and eats with us. 
As soon as the meal's over, she gets up, goes out in the kitchen, puts a couple of candles on the cake, and brings the cake in, singing happy birthday. So we join her. By this time, my sister is off the chain. And she says to me, that woman brings a cake. It doesn't even have mom's name on it. Instead, she got Phil. Phil, one, three. What's, who's Phil? And I said to her, hey, relax. It's Philippians. <laughs> this woman put Phil, one, three. You know what Phil, one, three says? I rejoice and thank my God for every remembrance of you. I don't know if my sister felt shame that day, but I did. Here's this outsider crashing my mother's party. And she's more thankful for my mom than I was at that moment. Remember how Jesus describes the kingdom of God? It's, he says it's like a king who's going to give a banquet. And he says to his servants, go out into the highways and byways. Get the weak and the needy and the crippled and the lame and the blind and bring them in to eat. That's what Nehemiah says these people do. The second sign of their dedication is not only they're sacrificing their pockets, they're sacrificing their pride. They're saying, you know what? There are no outsiders. It's not a time to be exclusive. It's time to be inclusive. You know why? Because when you know that you are there at the table because of grace, it's really hard to shut anybody else out. Then third, notice they not only sacrifice their pockets and their pride, they sacrifice their praise. Look at verse 40. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. Martin Luther once said, Music is a fair and glorious gift of God. I would not for the world forego my humble share of music. Music makes people kinder, gentler, and more, more reasonable. I am strongly persuaded that after theology, there is no art that can be placed on the level with music. For besides theology, music is the only art capable of affording peace and joy to the heart. The devil flies or flees before the sound of music almost as much as he does before the sound of the Word of God. That's what we see here. Nehemiah knows that the heart of a transformed heart is praise. And so look what he does. He assembles two choirs. He brings them up onto the wall. Remember, it's 11 feet wide. And he says to one group, I want you to go north. And the other group, I want you to go south. And I want you to sing. And I want you to play your instruments. And I want you to praise the Lord. And we'll meet at the temple. So he sends them. And they go around that wall, two and a half miles around it, and they are singing, and they are playing their instruments. And Nehemiah says, their praise is heard a long way off. Somebody said the only rational expression of grace is praise. The only rational expression of a grace-filled life is praise because it lifts your eyes from you and from others onto the Lord. 
And that's what we see here. An entire city is caught up in praising the Lord. Everything that has happened since the completion of the wall has loosened their hearts and their tongues to give praise and glory to God. And immediately, Nehemiah relates what he hears that day in that city to what he imagines it would have been like when David was king in Jerusalem those many centuries ago. And then fourth, there's another act of sacrifice here, and that's the sacrifice of their pleasure. Look at verse 43. And they offered great sacrifice that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. You know what Friedrich Nietzsche once said? He said, if Christians expect me to believe in their Redeemer, then they should look a lot more redeemed than they do. (laughs) In other words, I don't see any difference. I don't see more joy. I don't see more less self-focus. I don't see any particular difference between those who say they're redeemed and those who actually are. But here, Nehemiah is showing us a whole city of people that look redeemed. In fact, he says four times in the space of one verse, They rejoice, they rejoice, they rejoice, and there's great joy. Think of it. For more than a century, their city has been no city at all because there hasn't been a wall. For more than a century, there's been no temple. For more than a century, it has just been a place in transit. There's no particular distinction with Jerusalem. For more than a century, they have mourned the fact that God, because of their own wickedness, has allowed their enemies to destroy the city. For more than a century, they've had to deal with the fact that the reason their life is in carnage is because of their own wickedness. And by the time Nehemiah gets there, there's little hope, if any. And you know, what's the Lord do? He sends a man whose name literally means God comforts. You remember how he gets there? He travels from an amazingly far distance. A monumental distance. And when he gets to the city, he's virtually unnoticed. And in the darkness, he begins to look at the ruination of the city. And after a time, he gathers together a few people and he begins to spread to them the vision to rebuild the wall. And they embrace it. But as those few people embrace it, many others don't. In fact, enemies arise and they are strongly resistant not only to Nehemiah but to his message. And these people who resist are rich and powerful and politically connected and they want to kill him. Does that sound familiar? And when his principal work is finished, the people come to recognize two things. 
God did it. And that's not all God intends to do through this comforter. God intends through this comforter to rebuild their lives. That's exactly what He does. Through the power of God's Word, the people are convicted of their sin. Through the power of God's Word, the people come to know His forgiveness and grace. Through the power of God's Word, they begin to confess their sins and they make declarations and promises to God. And even though when we get to chapter 13, we will see that they break every one of those promises in a matter of months, they come to recognize there's one who never breaks a single promise and that's God Almighty. You see, this isn't just the story of Jews in Jerusalem 2,500 years ago. This is your story. This is my story. It's the story of anyone and everyone who's ever been redeemed by the Comforter. In the midst of our guilt and our shame, in the midst of the ruin and rubble of our lives, in the midst of our broken promises, in the midst of no future, what does God do? He sends Himself from an amazingly far distance. And when He comes and He shows up, nobody recognizes Him. He comes at night, in the midst of a night stable, in the midst of a manger. He looks and He sees all the rubble around Him. This isn't just the story of Nehemiah. It's the story of Jesus and you. In the midst of our guilt and our shame, the Redeemer comes and He says, Go your way. Do not grieve. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Just like Joe Namath. Nehemiah deflects all type of credit. And so does Jesus. Jesus is singularly focused on the person and work of His Father. He's come to restore a body of believers. He's come to save a people of God and restore them to their mission. Our Comforter has come to redeem us and make us salt and light in this world so that people like Nietzsche might be able to say, you know, those redeemed people look a little differently than I do. You see, the story of Nehemiah is but a shadow of the story of the first advent. Jesus comes into our darkness. He comes into our rubble and our broken relationships. He comes into our trouble. He comes into our addictions. He comes into all those areas of darkness in our life that need to be redeemed. It's not a shadow. It's a reality. This is the first Sunday of Advent. Your Redeemer has come. Your Comforter is here. He wants to do much more than save you. He wants to remake you into people who are willing to take what He's given them and make it a blessing to all around. And if you doubt that, just look at this table. 